Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to week number four and the conclusion of our Daniel Dilemma series uh, on such a beautiful day, this sunny Sunday morning here in Buffalo, which lately have been few and far between. I just want to say thank you for coming to church because y'all could be on the golf course or doing some yard work, but you've prioritized worship, being in God's house with God's people, so you get a gold star, and I, for one, am grateful to have been had the opportunity to worship with all of you. I don't know about you, but I had an intense week, and I just got poured into by the Holy Spirit during that time of worship. I pray that we would never stop worshiping him in the wonder and awe of his grace, that from grace to grace, he is leading us and changing us. Amen? Listen, if you are new with us, if this is your first time, uh, let me be the second person to welcome you here today and introduce myself. My name is Pete. I have the joy and privilege of serving as the lead pastor here, and we're just excited to have you joining us here today. And if you are listening online or watching this on YouTube, I always like to look into the camera and say, so glad that you've taken some time to watch this. I pray this message blesses you. But what we really look forward is to seeing you here in person, to be a part of the family and the community that God is building and growing here at Life Church Buffalo. There is no substitute for being planted and rooted in a local church. And so we hope that you will come here and be a part of it. Uh, but I am excited to be here with all of you as we wrap up this series that we've been in called The Daniel Dilemma, looking at the life of Daniel and the dilemma that he faced in the Old Testament of how to love well and stand firm in a culture of compromise, which to me is the greatest challenge that Christians face today. Because a lot of people erroneously believe that they can only do one or the other. That if I'm going to stand firm, I lose my ability to have influence in the culture because people are going to ostracize themselves for me. And on the flip side, if I want to love people well, they think that I have to, you know, kind of compromise my convictions and, and all of that. And I think both are inaccurate. We can do both. We can love well and stand firm in a culture of compromise. And Daniel is the example that we've been looking at for how to do that. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time today, let me kind of bring you up to speed on everything we've talked about so far so you're not lost and wondering, you know, what the context of this is. So in week one, I laid the foundation for the series by talking about what for me is the most important message in the series, which is that we have to understand that in this culture, much like Daniel, culture has an agenda. They want to change our identities, they want to rename us, and they want to create some, some confrontation for us. And when that happens, as people of God, we need to know how to respond the right way to those confrontations. We want to be a people that respond just like Jesus, who is full of grace and full of truth. And then in week two, Pastor Beth continued the discussion by talking about culture itself. Daniel is located in a place called Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. And she, she suggested in her message that Babylon isn't just a location. It's also a mindset. It's a mentality or a way of thinking that the enemy has been trying to influence God's people with from the beginning of time that creates confusion. And really, it's a mindset that elevates self while it lowers God. A mindset that says, I am and there is no other. And if we want to see sanity restored to that confusion and that pride that comes, then we need to exalt God and humble ourselves. And then last week, we talked about standing firm. The subtitle of the book that Pastor Chris Hodges wrote is How to Stand Firm and Love Well in a Culture of Compromise. And we learned last week from Daniel's life that to live a stand-up life in a bow-down world where culture is always trying to get us to bow down 
to different gods and idols, if you will, then it requires a lot of courage on our part to stand firm even in spite of our fears. It requires faith, but when we stand firm, we have the opportunity to inspire others, even people who are outside of the faith, when they see our resolve to stand firm for our convictions and for our God. And so today we're going to wrap this whole thing up by talking about loving well. How do we love well in this culture? I want to begin with a quote. Let me just say this. If you were newer to faith, we had several people say yes to Jesus last week and are brand new to this whole journey. And there's a lot of people here who've been following Jesus for 40 or 50 years. And regardless of how long you've been following Jesus, if you can get this today, I think this message is so important. It's such a timely message for the church to hear today. I can't stress enough how important it is that we digest this and apply this to our lives. But Pastor Rick Warren had a quote a few years ago that I want to start with and share with you today. I think there's so much truth in this quote. He said this, that our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, that must, that must mean you either fear them or hate them. The second is that to love someone means that you agree with everything they believe or do. He says both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. Can I get a big amen to that? I think that is so true. But today, as we talk about love, I'm going to suggest some things that might challenge your idea about what love really is and what it means to love well in our culture. See, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible when it comes to the topic of love is found in Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he says this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Now that is really strong language. The only thing that counts? Really, Paul? Like, isn't faith in God the most important thing of all? Well, what you believe, having faith is important, but Paul says if that faith isn't expressing itself through love, it doesn't matter. The only thing that counts is if we have a faith that expresses itself through love. Even James, the half-brother of Jesus, said that faith without works is dead. And we're going to learn today how love and works kind of go hand in hand. And I think the church really hasn't always gotten this right. In our desire to be right, we dogmatically declare our doctrines and we use the Bible as a weapon to beat people over the head and we offend and hurt a lot of people because we've not operated in love. We've hurt a lot of people in the process. And I'm even convinced that there are some people who, are, who believe they're doing God's work by just agitating culture. Like, let me get their goal. Let me see how I can rile them up. But listen to me. We cannot agitate and influence culture at the same time. The moment your motivation is to antagonize people, you lose the ability to influence them. We cannot agitate and influence at the same time. Our goal should not be to be right. Our goal should be to be effective. And we can't influence culture when we're being mean and judgmental. In the world that we live in today with so much moral compromise, I think the only hope for our culture is a spiritual revolution. One led by strong and loving and confident Christians that know who they are and whose they are. The kind of followers of Jesus who engage with culture and are a breath of fresh air when they do. 
Like what kind of response or reaction do the people in your world make or have when you enter into a conversation at work around the water cooler? When they see you coming, do they roll their eyes and they're like, oh, here comes so-and-so, that Bible thumper. Or is it like, hey, it's so good to see you. Do they welcome you and invite you in? Is it a breath of fresh air to engage with you? Because if you remember from our last series on the Holy Spirit, he is a breath of fresh air. And if he's in our lives, like engaging with us should be a breath of fresh air too. Not being perfect Christians, but just people who are doing their best to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. A spiritual revolution led by boys and girls who love Jesus, who know who their Savior is and are trying to love people the way that Jesus has loved them. People like you and me. My hope and my prayer as the pastor of this church is that this is what, we're, what would represent the way we engage with culture, that it would be a breath of fresh air. And that's what I love about Daniel so much is because he had influence in his culture, but can you imagine if you put yourself in his shoes? I don't think Daniel ever in his life plan as he was growing up as a boy, early teenager in Jerusalem, I don't think he had it on his five-year plan to be you know, conquered and taken captive into a foreign land and become a prisoner of war. Can you imagine the, the shock and the pain of being taken into sla slavery and to a different land with a completely foreign culture? Can you imagine how it felt to be separated from your homeland, from your family and your friends? Can you imagine how insecure he must have felt to find himself in a culture that completely mocked his religion and despised his way of life? And yet Daniel was a man of influence in his culture that served not one, not two, not three, but four different kings over the span of 70 years in Babylon. Daniel would be in Babylon for 70 years, and during that span, four different kings would rise to power, and all four kings respected Daniel and placed him in positions of influence and power in their government. I would say that Daniel was a person of influence. And so how did he do that? Well, as we've seen over the last several weeks, he remained dependent on God and God strengthened him and gave him the ability to stand firm. And he was able at the same time to still influence his culture. And I think if we will take our cue from him and stay in that place of surrender to God, he will continue to transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ and give us the power to walk out our calling, which is to influence culture. And so that's what really leadership is all about influence, isn't it? You hear me talk about leadership a lot. If you talk to any of my staff members, you know that every Tuesday during our staff meetings, you know, we end every staff meeting with a leadership lesson because we're always talking about leadership. I believe everything rises and falls on leadership. And maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know what, that sounds great, but I'm not a leader. Well, leadership is about influence. And every single one of you has influence in some arena of your life. It's time that as followers of Jesus, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, we begin to see ourselves as leaders in our culture. You have influence, whether it's as a parent with your children, whether it's at work, and you don't have to be a manager or supervisor to have influence. You can influence the people around you. It has nothing to do with title. We all have influence. 
And Daniel had influence as well. And I want to look at how he influences culture. It's my favorite verse or passage when it comes to leadership. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius. Now, we've got a new king here. The past few weeks, we've been talking about Nebuchadnezzar. But a new king has risen to power. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule through the kingdom. Now, a satrap was, would be kind of the equivalent of like a city official in our day, like a mayor almost. And with three administrators over those satraps. So this would be like a governor over, you know, the, the mayors, if you will. And one of those administrators was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. They're basically given the responsibility to govern and rule the kingdom, to protect the king's interest and ensure that the kingdom continued to flourish in advance. Now, verse 3, this is where I love this. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Now, notice it doesn't say that Daniel was naturally distinguished, which I'm grateful for because I don't think I'm naturally distinguished either. It says he distinguished himself by his exceptional qualities. We've got to understand the difference because being distinguished, naturally distinguished, usually refers to a person's appearance. Wow, he's very distinguished looking. Or it might refer to a person's natural ability. But distinguishing oneself usually has to do with what you do and how you do it. We've got to understand the distinction here. That Daniel had some exceptional qualities that he had applied himself to that caused him to distinguish himself, to stand out and to stand above the other administrators in the kingdom. We don't have to be super saints or perfect Christians We just have to apply ourselves to developing some exceptional qualities so that we can have influence in our culture. See, Daniel distinguished himself by being a man devoted to God who refused to compromise his convictions. But that's not the only thing he did. He also distinguished himself by serving his king well. If he was just a religious man, but he wasn't very good at his job, do you think the king would place him in a position of influence or authority. No, like Daniel applied himself. He was smart. He was learned. He studied. He governed well. He was wise. He was a man after God's heart. He, he, he devoted himself to being a man that would understand the way God operates. And he would use that wisdom to help the king in a pagan culture lead well. And it earned him the right to gain influence in his culture. I want to dispel a myth that is very popular in the church today, which says that, you know what, to have influence in the culture, you've got to look like culture. You've got to act like culture. You've got to talk like culture. Baloney. You don't have to look like culture to influence culture. Daniel looked nothing like the Babylonians in his culture, and yet he so distinguished himself, and he had influence. We don't have to look like the world to have influence in the world. You just have to develop and apply yourselves to developing some exceptional qualities, qualities like humility, qualities like integrity and perseverance and excellence and commitment. Those qualities will cause you to stand out. And so the king had determined to appoint Daniel as head over the whole kingdom 
And because of this, in verse 4, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct, in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Daniel distinguished himself by serving his king with excellence. And I wonder if the same can be said of us. Are you distinguishing yourself at school, students? Are you distinguishing yourself at work? Are you the person who arrives early and is the last one to leave every day? Or are you rolling in a few minutes past your actual start time and you know, checking out early because you just wanna get home? Are you the person that people come to when they need something done right? Or are you always like kind of cutting corners because you just wanna get it done as quickly as possible? Are you the person when like butts are on the line and there's a deadline, people come to you because they know you've proven yourself faithful and they know they can depend on you to get the job done right? Are you distinguishing yourself at work? Because you'll gain influence in culture when you serve people with excellence. And that's why excellence is such a big deal to me. That's why one of our core values at church, the first core value we have is to reach and teach with excellence because excellence honors God. God gave his very best when he sent his son Jesus. And so we should give no less than our best when we serve him and the people that he's called us to love. Excellence honors God and it inspires people. And so everything we do as a church, we wanna do it with excellence. And now maybe some of you are thinking, this all sounds great, Pastor, but what in the world does this have to do with loving well? I thought we were talking about how to love well, and you're talking about leadership and influence. Now here's where I want to challenge some of your suppositions about what love really is. Because it was Daniel's love for God that enabled him to serve this Babylonian pagan king well. Daniel influenced culture because of how he served his Babylonian masters. So we've got to redefine our idea of love because in our culture, we usually think about love as a feeling, right? I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dog. I love my house. I love my car. I love pizza and wings. I love the Buffalo Bills. Whatever it is that you have a positive feeling about, you can say that you love that thing. But listen, feelings come and go, don't they? Feelings can change based on what I ate for dinner last night right? But the love that Jesus calls us to is not based on feelings. The, the word for love in the New Testament when Jesus talks about love is the word agape. And it's, it's a love that is a love of choice. It's a love of action. It's a verb, if you will, that is not conditional upon having received love. It's an unconditional love that regardless of what other people deserve, I'm gonna treat them with the dignity and the respect that they're due as a human being made in the image of God. Agape love is unconditional, given without regard to their due. In fact, if you look at the word love in the dictionary in the English language, all of the definitions are surrounding feelings. It's a strong affection, it's a warm attachment, or it's an attraction based on sexual feelings. It's very narrowly described in the English language, but that's not what Jesus was talking about. Think about it. When Jesus said, love your enemies, 
Love those who, bless those who persecute you. He wasn't talking about feelings. No one can dictate or demand that you feel positive regard for someone who's being a jerk. Like we can't control the way we feel about people who are just meanies, right? When I'm a jerk to my wife, if I do something boneheaded or stupid at home, like she's not gonna have warm, fuzzy feelings for me. But no, because of her commitment to me, she's still able to treat me with respect. My next door neighbor could be a jerk, could be a total pain in the you-know-what. And I might not have the warmest regard for him. I might not feel positive feelings towards him, but I can still be patient with him. I can still speak to him with kindness, with respect. That's the kind of love we're talking about here. So how do we do that? Because this isn't easy. Well, as Jesus followers... We gotta follow Jesus' example, right? I mean, the whole reason Jesus came, he said, was to show us the love of the Father. He came to seek and save the lost. And as we said earlier in the series, he never once had to compromise who he was. He never had to compromise the truth in his pursuit of lost people. And that's what he's commanded us to do. The, the night before Jesus would go to the cross, think about the the wait, if you knew that today was your last day on this planet and you had your, your family with you and, and there was, what would you want to share with them? Like this is the setting at the Last Supper. Jesus is with his disciples, the people that have been with him for the last three years. This is the group of people that he's going to hand the keys of the church to as he gets crucified and then ascends to his father after he resurrects from the dead. So these words carry with them some, some huge weight and significance. And in this setting, Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new command I give you. And so John, whose gospel we're reading, is writing this down. Jesus says, love one another. Now John's like, well, wait a minute, Jesus. That, what's new about that? That's in the Old Testament. We've heard you say that a bunch of times. But then Jesus continues and clarifies, and here's where the new comes in. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, really, Jesus? Wow, how do we do that? Could you imagine Jesus at, at this dinner table setting, like looking at Matthew as they're all like, how do we do that? Matt, Matthew, do you remember where you were when I first called you? Yeah, you, you were in the tax collector's booth and everyone here hated you and couldn't believe that I was calling you to follow us because you guys need to understand tax collectors in this culture, in this society were despised. They were the lowest of the low. They had a whole class unto themselves. That's why when you read the gospels, it was tax collectors and sinners. Like there were sinners and then there was tax collectors. They were considered scum, completely despised by their countrymen because they were viewed as traitors. They were Jews who worked for the Romans, collecting taxes from the Jews and always charging extra so they could skim off the top and rob from their own people. They were hated. And what did we do? Matthew, we, we, we had a party at your house, right? And John was like, oh yeah, I remember that day. My mom always told me not to hang out with people like him and you took us to a party full of people like them. Matthew, do you remember how I loved you? Yeah. Well, that's, that's how I want you to love one another. Those who are despised and rejected and outcast by society, that's how you need to love one another. 
Oh, and Nathaniel, do you remember what you said when your brother first told you about me? And Nathaniel was like, you knew that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your brother that said, come see this Jesus of Nazareth. And you looked at him and said, Nazareth? Really? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel, you mocked my hometown and my whole family lineage. And yet, I still invited you to come follow me. So when people mock you and ridicule you and say all kinds of things about you and your family, yeah, that's, that's how I want you to love one another. Guys, the way I have loved and treated you for the last three years that I've been with you, that, that's the standard. That's how you're to love one another. And then just to add to the weight of this new command he's given them, he continues in verse 35. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you, now we, a lot of us know the way this verse ends. But some of us think that it's, if you go to church every Sunday, right? If you know your Bible really well, you read your Bible every day. Or you really pray a lot. Or you give a lot of money in the offering and you help the poor. Right? If you serve on the dream team at church. If you have your doctrine just perfect. No, that's, that's not what Jesus said. The world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Guys, it's not about how much you know. It's about how well you love. You want to talk about a distinguishing characteristic. Daniel distinguished himself. This is the distinguishing characteristic that should let the world know that we belong to Jesus. And if the mission he gave us is to make disciples of everyone, and as disciples, the way we treat one another is what shows the world what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, then there is a lot riding on our ability to get this right, to live this out. When people see the way we treat one another, they should be kind of drawn in. They should come to the edge and peer into our lives and these Jesus gatherings we have, these communities, and say, look at how they treat one another. That's so different than the love we see in the world, which is only given when received. It's only when it's convenient. But look at their marriages. Look at how the husbands treat their wives. Look at how the wives treat the husbands. Look at how they treat the elderly or treat the sick. Look at how they honor children. Look at how they serve their, their employees. Look at how they treat their bosses and talk about their bosses. The way we treat one another, guys, should be so radical and so different that it leaves no question in the minds and hearts of people who are outside the faith. It should cause them to lean in and say, I'm not sure I believe everything they believe, but man, do they know how to love. It should be what distinguishes us from the culture. It's how we love one another. That's why another one of our core values here is that we want to love and serve with intentionality. And speaking of that, hopefully you guys saw that a lot of our volunteers here today are now sporting these brand new Dream Team team member t-shirts because we want to, in an attempt to better serve the guests that walk through our doors with excellence, 
make sure that all of our team members are easily identifiable. And on the back, it's got our core value. We're here to love and serve. Aren't these shirts awesome? I love these. Thanks to my dream team members for wearing these. But we want to love and serve with intentionality. Because when it comes to loving like Jesus loves, loving and serving are synonymous. You might be able to serve someone without loving them, but you cannot love people without serving them. Not if we're going to follow Jesus' example. And we say with intentionality because it's not a feeling, it's a choice. If you wait until you feel like it, you'll never do it. We're going to love and serve people with intentionality. And we can't talk about love in the church without looking at the most famous passage on love in the scriptures, which wasn't put in there for weddings. It was put in there by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to help us as followers of Jesus understand what love really is and what it's not. And I'm going to read these to you and give you some principles from this verse by verse. And as I do, I want you to notice how none of them are feelings. They're all choices. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You could talk a great talk. You can talk about the Bible. You can speak in tongues. You can talk circles around people when it comes to theology and doctrine. But Paul is saying, if you don't have love, when you talk, you're just making noise. What's the principle here? What's he saying? Without love, all I say is ineffective. Without love, all I say is ineffective. And I'm going to just pause and kind of park here for a moment because this is a hot button issue for me and I'm gonna maybe get up on my soapbox a little bit and I'm the pastor, I've got the microphone so I can do that and you're gonna have to listen to me. And if I step on some toes, I apologize in advance. But this is a big one, guys. Because my words cannot affect change if they're not motivated by love. And some people would say, yeah, but I'm right. Maybe. But ain't nobody listening to you if you're being mean and judgy about it. Guys, it's not about winning arguments. It's, just, it's about winning hearts. See, we live in a very opinionated culture. I think we would all agree with that. I mean, we have glorified opinion over facts sometimes. And when you give an opinion, like... It's such a critical, like, volatile culture that people will, it's like blood in the water with sharks. They just go on the attack. And if you don't believe me, then you've never shared an opinion on social media. There's a, a video I want to show you real quick. It's only a couple seconds long. Maybe you've seen this on Facebook. But sharing an opinion in 2019 be like this. The second you put yourself out there to give an opinion, especially if it's a hot button issue, man, you better be ready for some arrows to be thrown at you. <laughs> Can we just determine as a church that we're not going to be like that? That we're not going to be people who go on the attack and just judge people and say all sorts of things when someone of the opposite political party says something that we don't agree with? Can we not do that? And... Please, can we also, Christians, not be posting stuff that's going to elicit those kind of things if it's not motivated by love? I'm just going to put this out there. 
And this goes to both sides of the political party because that's the one that elicits the most vitriolic responses. Listen, I understand that we live in a free country and we have the freedom of speech. We have the right to give our opinion. But man, opinions are like, you know what? Everyone has one and they all stink. (laughs) Jesus said the world would know we're his disciples, not by which political candidate we love or hate, but by our love for one another. Jesus lived in a culture that had very ungodly rulers, and yet did you hear him talk a lot about the ruling party? No, he taught people how to love. And I wish Christians would spend more time thinking about how they can love and serve people instead of saying that the hope of our country is in who's in the Oval Office. I don't care who's in the Oval Office, Republican, Democrat, whatever. The hope of our country is the body of Jesus Christ living out our faith in a way that expresses itself in love. So can we just stop being all mean-spirited when we're posting this stuff? Please, can we stop? But I'm right, and I'm just saying it like it is. That's who I am. I'm just speaking the truth because somebody's got to speak it. Nobody else is. It doesn't matter, though, if you don't have love. Paul said in Ephesians 4.15 that we will speak the truth how? In love growing in every way more and more like Christ. A couple verses later in verse 29, this is a great verse to live by. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, not our right to voice our opinion, building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Guys, the stuff that's coming out of our mouth, we've got to be more careful. We're either building people up or tearing people down. There would be a whole lot less said and a whole lot less posted if as Jesus followers, we actually lived by this. I'll get off my soapbox now. Y'all still love me? I'm just saying, man, it's got to stop. Let the distinguishing characteristic of the way we treat people and talk to people be love. I think we ought to make a commitment right here, right now, as the body of Christ in church to say, God, help me with this. Let every word that comes out of my mouth to my wife, to my children, to my coworkers and my classmates, to my boss or my employee, to people of the opposite political persuasion, to people who disagree with me. Let everything that I say be used to help build them up and encourage them, not tear them down. God, help us with this. All right, I ain't got much time, so I gotta keep going. I'm gonna go through the rest of these really fast, so keep up with me, okay? In verse two, Paul continues, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge but don't have love, he continues, I am nothing. What's he saying? Without love, all I know is insignificant. You can know a lot about the Bible. You can know a lot about doctrine and theology, but without love, all I know is insignificant. He continues, if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
What's he saying? Without love, all I believe is insufficient. Guys, belief is important. Having faith is important. I can have faith to do miracles and see miracles happen, but if I don't have love, all I believe, it's insufficient. He continues, verse three, if I give all I possess to the poor, but don't have love, I'm nothing. What's he saying? Without love, all I give is incomplete. Guys, is giving important? Absolutely. We're called to be generous. You can't love without giving. God demonstrated that for us. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. But giving can become an idol. We can get puffed up in our generosity and say, look at me. Look at how much I give. Look at how much I'm helping the poor. But if it's not motivated by love, all I give is incomplete. And if I give my body to hardship that I may boast, which is a fancy Bible way of saying, if I work hard to accomplish a lot, but do not have love, I gain nothing which is another way of saying without love, all I accomplish is inadequate. You guys, I am super driven to accomplish a lot for God. But if I don't love and treat people well on my way to accomplishing the things that God has put in my heart to do, all I accomplish doesn't matter because what matters is how we treat people. We are all gonna stand before God one day and give an account for what we did with the love he gave us. There are two judgments that we're gonna face at the end of our lives. One is the judgment that determines whether, where you're gonna spend eternity. And that's only by grace through faith in Jesus. But the judgment seat of Christ that comes after that determines what kind of reward you're going to get where you spend eternity. And at, when, I, when I stand before God and I give an account for what I did with my life, you know what his question to me is not gonna be? It's not going to be, hey, Pete, how many people were attending the last service you pastored at Life Church Buffalo? No. What's the question going to be? Pete, did you love people like I loved you? Did you show people what my love looks like by the way you treat them? That's the standard. That's the measurement that we're all going to be judged with. And so he continues in this passage love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Man, I wish we would do that. Love does not delight in evil. And I highlighted love does because love does some stuff. It's not a feeling, it does some stuff. There's a great book out there by Bob Goff called Love Does. You should pick it up and read it. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Notice none of those things are a feeling. They're all a choice. And this would be a great passage to read, to start your day off every day, to remind you what the standard is, what we're called to do as followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, when you read it, it wouldn't take you more than a minute to start your day off and read these few verses. And you can even substitute the word love for, with your name and just say, you know what? Peter is patient. Peter is kind. Peter does not envy. Peter does not boast, and he is not proud. Peter does not dishonor other, others. Peter is not self-seeking, and he's not easily angered, and he keeps no record of wrongs. Peter does not delight in evil, but he rejoices with the truth. 
Peter always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Peter never fails. And if as you read that and you put your name in it, if that doesn't describe the way you live your life and the way you treat people, then we know we've got some work to do. And you might say to yourself, well, that's, the sta- that's like perfection and I can't do that. Like, I don't know how to do this. You guys, we can't do it in our own strength. But that's why we need Jesus. God's love has been poured out in our hearts. So I want to ask you a question, a rhetorical question that you might want to write down, a question that you can ask yourself every day. This is kind of just boiling it all down. The way we apply this, ask yourself, what's it like to be on the other side of me? What's it like to be my wife who interacts with me? What's it like to be my children who receive my correction? What's it like to be my boss who has to hear about all the complaints I make about him? What's it like to be my employee? What's it like to be on the other side of me? It's a great question to ask yourself to gauge whether or not you are loving people like Jesus has called us to love them. And so as a church, what we want to do in closing is give you some opportunities to begin to put this into practice. Because if you've been changed by the love of Jesus, then we're called to love the people around us. That's how the world will know that we're his. We're called to follow in the footsteps of the one who said he didn't come to be served, but he came to serve. And you can't serve, you can't love someone without serving them. And so as a follower of Christ, serving people is not an option. It's a command from our king. Are we going to be faithful to walk this out in obedience? Peter, the apostle, wrote in his first letter, he says, every one of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others. You've heard me share that verse so many times because that's how we steward the grace that God has given us. It's by serving others. And so coming up in a couple weeks on July 13th, tentatively, we're going to be joining thousands of other churches around the country in what's become known as Serve Day. If you've not heard of it before, Church of the Highlands began it more than 10 years ago, and it has grown into a movement where thousands of churches around the country all choose the same day and plan events in their community to get outside the four walls of the church and just demonstrate the love of Jesus to people in real and practical ways. And so it might be cleaning up a park. It might be helping someone at their house. It might be visiting people in an old folks home. I don't know what it is. We're going to be meeting with the staff this week to start putting these events together. And you're going to hear more in the weeks to come about how you can sign up to be a part of Serve Day so that we can just get out into the community and demonstrate the love of Jesus to people. And then after that, starting on July 19th, you might remember that Steve Tiber from Eight Days of Hope came here and talked to us about how they're beginning a new initiative in here in Buffalo called Eight Days of Hope Buffalo, where for eight days, they've chosen 100 families, 100 homes that volunteers from 26 different states are all coming to Buffalo during that week to demonstrate the love of Jesus, to be the hands and feet of Jesus by helping people with their roofs, doing electrical work, doing plumbing work, whatever the needs are in those 100 homes, the church is going to come together of different denominational backgrounds and just represent Jesus by serving people because they are people made in the image of God. They're worthy of dignity and respect because people don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. 
Some of you might be like, you know what, this sounds great and all, but like this, sta- I, I, can't, I can't attain to that standard. I would say, you know what, you're right. None of us can serve people, can love people this way in our own strength, which is why Paul said in Romans 5.5, 5, that God's love has been poured out into your hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Guys, the Holy Spirit lives in us. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. And so it's his love that lives within us that enables us to love and treat people the way we've been talking about. And love isn't love unless it's demonstrated. That's what he said a couple verses later in verse eight when he said, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, he died for us. Guys, we've got to demonstrate God's love to people. It's not love unless it's demonstrated. And how did Jesus love us? Did he wait for us to get everything right? Did he wait for us to take a step towards him? Did he wait for us to acknowledge him and say, Jesus, you are Lord? No, while we were still sinners, while we were still breaking his law, before we even acknowledged his existence, God sent his son to die for us. And guys, as people of God, as followers of Jesus, before that person who's offended you asks for forgiveness, you can extend that forgiveness to them. As followers of Jesus, we're gonna follow in his footsteps and initiate love, initiate serving others with intentionality, not when we feel like it. We're gonna choose to do it because that's what he's called us to do because that's how they're gonna know we belong to him. That's how they're gonna know what it means to follow Jesus. It's a love so radical and so different that it leaves no question in the minds of people, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, what it means to follow Jesus. How do we love well in a culture of compromise? We leverage the influence that we have with them by serving. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, as we conclude this series, I just pray right now that your Holy Spirit would speak to hearts. Lord, would convict us if we have not demonstrated your love to the world around us because we've been more concerned about being right than being effective. Lord, would you just help us, God, to have some humility as we engage with culture and that you would give us your heart for the lost people in our world. Lord, that you would help us to demonstrate your love to them by serving them. We may not feel like it, but help us to understand that right feelings follow right actions, that if we will do the right thing, God, the feelings will follow. But Lord, we're not gonna wait for the feelings. We're just going to walk in obedience to what you've called us to do. And as we do, God, may we see a revolution sweep across our city when other people look in and they see, like, why are you being like that? Why are you acting like that? Why are you doing that? We can be ready to give them a reason. It's because God loves you and so do we. And it would create desire in them to want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. God, I pray for a revival in the city of Buffalo because churches across the city are beginning to understand, Lord, that it's not about being right. It's about reaching people with the love of Jesus and demonstrating that. Lord, may may we not be hearers of the word only, but may we be doers. And if there are some people here who came in not really claiming to be a Christian, 
Maybe somebody invited you or maybe you're curious about faith and you heard about what's happening here. I don't know what brings you here today, but I don't believe it's an accident. I believe the Spirit of God drew you here, that there is a divine appointment for you to say yes to his invitation to come and live inside of your heart. Doesn't mean all of your questions are gonna be answered, but if you're here today and you are ready to stop making excuses for why you've not chosen to follow Jesus and you're ready to receive his free gift of forgiveness with all heads bowed and eyes closed, I just wanna ask to just raise your hand. Let me know by raising your hand up if you wanna become a follower of Jesus and be welcomed into the family of God and know that you will have a home with him in eternity one day. Anybody here, just raise your hand if you wanna say yes to Jesus. Well, God, as a church, I just pray that you would help us to live this out. Lord, that we would demonstrate your love to those around us and that the world would know that we belong to you. And we thank you for it, God. Give us the strength and the power to do it. We know your Holy Spirit's been poured out in our hearts. So help us to live this out. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen and amen. Well,